You're listening to Plenary Session. Plenary Session is a podcast at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy. It's the place we talk about everything important and nothing that isn't. I'm your host, Vinay Prasad. In this week's episode, we'll talk about a viewpoint in JAMA entitled The Challenge of Reforming Nutritional Epidemiology. It's by John Yonides. We're going to talk about the U.S. Food and Drug Administration's August 16th approval of lenvantinib. We'll discuss last week's New England Journal of Medicine article on immunotherapy for melanoma with brain metastases. And this week's guest is Dr. Avio Glasser from OHSU talking to us about medical Twitter. Stay tuned. But first, a plug. If you like this episode and you like this show, go on to iTunes and give us five stars. It really means a lot. If you have questions, comments, ideas for future episodes, things you want to hear me talk about, email us at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. All right, let's start with the gem of viewpoint. Now, people who follow me may know that a few weeks ago on Twitter, I took an axe to a very poor quality paper in The Lancet that claimed that drinking something like five drinks or more a week was harmful to health. Um, It truly made no difference to me whether this paper were about alcohol or coffee or even if it had been sparkling water. Uh, I wasn't a big fan of the methodology. I'm not a big fan of the field. And I think this paper is emblematic of so much of what is wrong with nutritional epidemiology. I said something very strong on Twitter, something like the entire field was intellectually bankrupt or close to that, uh, something like they ought to close up shop. And surprisingly, a lot of people agreed. John Ioannidis does something very similar this week in JAMA. I won't get too far into it because we plan on devoting a special podcast episode solely to nutritional epidemiology, explaining to you why it is often erroneous, misleading, and why perhaps much of it ought to just shutter its doors. But let me give you the best part of John's viewpoint. This is straight from the paper. Assuming the meta-analyzed evidence from cohort studies represents lifespan-long causal associations for baseline life expectancy of 80 years, eating 12 hazelnuts daily would prolong life by 12 years, one year per hazelnut. Drinking three cups of coffee daily would achieve a similar gain of 12 extra years, and eating a single mandarin orange daily would add five years of life. Could these results possibly be true? And the answer is no, they can't possibly be true. They're impossible, they're implausible, they're irrational. And that should be giving caution and pause to the people who are producing those estimates. These implausible estimates of benefits or risks, um, uh, this, is, this is back to John, these implausible estimates of benefits or risks associated with diet probably reflect almost exclusively the magnitude of the cumulative biases in this type of research with extensive residual confounding and selective reporting. Okay, so in future episodes in this podcast that I plan on devoting strictly to nutritional epidemiology, I'm going to explain residual confounding, which is really that there are unmeasured covariates driving the endpoint that you are not adjusting for, or perhaps not even measuring, or perhaps not even acknowledging. I'm going to explain something called the vibration of effects phenomenon, um, why covariate selection is so important in these models. And I'm going to explain the biggest problem of the field, which is rampant multiplicity paired with selective reporting. When you combine rampant multiplicity and selective reporting, you often will have misleading results. 
So in the meantime, the next time you open the newspaper to read about some story about coffee, don't just, don't, don't read it, just skip it, don't click on it, and don't feed the monster. All right, let's turn to the main course, Lenvantanib. On August 16th, 2018, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration approved Lenvatinib for the treatment of frontline, unresectable hepatocellular carcinoma. Now, before I get into this approval and why I think it's bad and emblematic of the many bad approvals we're seeing from the U.S. FDA, I need to give you a little background. Um, let's go back a few years. Around 2008, we had very few treatment options for advanced or metastatic or unresectable hepatocellular carcinoma. In fact, uh, we had nearly no options. A clinical trial came out in, in the New England Journal of Medicine called SHARP. SHARP randomized patients to serafinib or best supportive care. It was done in the frontline setting. These are patients with generally good performance status, generally good child's pew status. And what the trial showed was that median overall survival was improved from 7.9 months to 10.7 months. That's a 2.8 month improvement in overall survival. And the hazard ratio was about 0.7. So I think many people felt that this was some step forward, although, you know, admittedly a modest step forward, but a step forward nonetheless. We started to use serafinib in clinical practice, and I think many of us encountered uh, difficulties with giving it to the patients we tended to see. Um, many patients had toxicity or side effects that led them to want to dose reduce or perhaps even dose discontinue the medication. Uh, people were not very happy with this medication in clinical practice. I think many of us were frustrated by the disconnect between the clinical trial and our own experience using the medication. In 2016, we had a bit of vindication when Hannah Sanoff and colleagues from the University of North Carolina studied the use of serafinib in the CMS data set. They found some things that were pretty surprising. When you look at CMS and you look at all the patients who are prescribed serafinib for HCC, the median duration of use was 60 days. The median survival from the first prescription was three months. So I just wanna point this out, that in the real world, in the CMS data set, patients receiving serafinib survive less than half of what patients receiving placebo survived in the pivotal study that happened years before. When Hannah Sanoff and colleagues performed a propensity score matched analysis, trying to find that group in the untreated population that were as comparable as possible to the group in whom serafinib was given, they found that they also lived about the same, and there is no statistical difference in survival between the group that got serafinib and the propensity score matched group that did not. What does this paper show? This shows that real world outcomes on serafinib are far worse uh, than they are in the pivotal trial. It also shows that in the real world, serafinib may not perform that much better than placebo. Sean Mylan, Cody, and I thought this was a very provocative study, and we ended up writing a paper in JAM Oncology where we made the argument that overall survival in cancer clinical trials um, may be a surrogate endpoint of sorts. Now, overall survival is a meaningful endpoint in and of itself. That's indisputable. But the patients who are enrolled on pivotal clinical trials at the US FDA are often much younger than average cancer patients. They often have fewer comorbidities. And at some point, you're enrolling patients who are so dissimilar from the average American that what you're doing is you're running a trial that tells you very little about whether or not a drug 
can be leveraged to improve health outcomes in the United States. And we actually contend that we should be treating overall survival in settings of ideal efficacy as a surrogate for overall survival under more pragmatic disease settings, and that some of the same principles, some of the same regulatory pathways and post-marketing follow-up should exist. All right, now let's turn to the main study, lenvatinib versus serafinib in the first-line treatment of patients with unresectable hepatocellular carcinoma, a randomized phase 3 non-inferiority trial, which appeared in The Lancet in March 2018 and recently formed the basis for the U.S. Food and Drug Administration approval of lenvatinib in the frontline setting of advanced or metastatic HCC. Uh, I only have nine things to say about this paper, which I had the chance to read. Uh, number one, Editorial assistance was provided by so-and-so of Oxford Pharmagenesis, funded by the sponsoring company. Uh, as I've said before on this podcast, I really don't like this. I think authors have to write their own papers. They should not have editorial assistance. And there are a number of quotes throughout this paper that I find very unusual, I'm not a big fan of. And when I mention those quotes, one must wonder what the origin of those quotes were. All right, number two. What exactly is this trial? This is a large, randomized control trial. 1,500 people about were recruited. 954 were actually randomized to lenvatinib, 478 patients, or serafinib, 476 patients. It's a non-inferiority study. These studies tend to require a bit more power to make sure the upper bound of your hazard ratio excludes the margin or the delta, the difference between the two arms, thought impermissible. Okay, so lenvatinib scored a 3.6, sorry, a 13.6 month median survival, which was found non-inferior to serafinib, which was 12.3 months. The upper bound of the hazard ratio is 1.06, um, and it says in the paper the authors would have accepted an upper bound as high as 1.08, which basically means that the authors are willing to accept the drug that is only 60% as good as serafinib is. So if serafinib is a few months better than placebo, and that benefit is eroded in the real world, we're basically saying we're willing to take a drug that is no worse than 60% the treatment effect of serafinib, which I think is setting the bar way too low. And to be clear, this trial did not show superiority. It merely showed non-inferiority. We need to be very clear about that. The trial also looked at quality of life. It found that quality of life was, well, there are lots of ways you could slice it, but the bottom line was the between group comparison, the summary score was not statistically different. And when it comes to adverse events, it didn't look like like lenvantinib was that much better, uh, particularly for the, the side effects of hypertension, where it was 42% any grade versus 30%. Uh, decreased appetite was 34% versus 27%. Fatigue was 30% any grade versus 25% on serafinib. And just glancing down this list, nausea stands out 20% versus 14%. And in many other categories, these two are kind of neck and neck. My fourth point, this paper really shows very nicely how surrogates can so often fail, fail to tell us what we really care about and be deeply misleading. Using Resist 1.1, the PFS on len lenvatinib was 7.3 months. It was 3.6 months on serafinib. That's a hazard ratio of 0.65. Looking at response rate, the response rate per Resist 1.1 was 19% on the drug, 7% on serafinib. Again, it improves response rate, it improves PFS, there was a longer duration of treatment. 
However, at the end of the day, overall survival was not statistically significantly improved. Uh, it was no better. Uh, it was not inferior, but it was no better than serafinib, which just goes to show you that these surrogates of response rate and PFS do not really measure, often do not measure, what we actually care about, which is living longer or living better. Five. Whoever wrote this manuscript made an argument I think is very poor. I would even characterize as a bit shameful. Let me read it to you. If post-progression survival is prolonged by, po by such post-study treatments, this could lead to dilution of the observed overall survival treatment benefit. Hence, although still representing the gold standard, overall survival as an endpoint alone for trials in first-line hepatocellular carcinoma treatment might no longer capture the full extent of anti-tumor efficacy. Are you kidding me? Oh, we want cancer drugs that extend the quantity or quality of life of patients. If you run a trial and your new drug, although it doubles response rate, although it almost doubles progression-free survival, does not lead to improvements in overall survival, what you're really saying is even without our drug, you could have achieved similar survival. That's not a good thing to say about your drug. That's saying the surrogates do not capture the actual effect of the drug on what patients actually care about, mortality. That is declaring failure. This is fanciful rhetoric used to disguise the simple fact that in a highly lethal condition, we were unable to improve upon a drug that is honestly not that good. Okay, that's what they're sugarcoating. I find this to be absolutely unacceptable. This entire idea that post-progression survival is diluted by all these old drugs and other treatments that may or may not have shown benefit individually, um, and that's why we can't show survival benefit. This is a fanciful excuse and a way to lower the bar, and I accept none of it. Now let's turn to one of the main issues, my sixth point, the drug dosing. Now, about two-thirds of patients in this trial were over 60 kilogram body mass, and they started at 12 milligrams a day of lenvatinib. Um, and, and that was a fair starting dose because a very comparable percentage, something like in the mid 30 to 40 percent of patients in both arms underwent a dose reduction. So I think by shooting at that 12 milligrams a day dose in this body weight, that was actually a reasonable thing because it had a comparable dose reduction to serafinib. But here's the key. If you were dose reduced on lenvatinib, you were dose reduced from 12 to 8 to 4. If you were dose reduced on serafinib, you were 400 BID to 400 once daily to 400 every other day. So let's just think about this percentage-wise. For the majority of patients over 60 kilogram body weight who are on 12, if you were dose reduced, you went down to 66% your starting dose. The second dose reduction, 33% your starting dose. If you were on serafinib and you required a dose reduction, you went down to 50% the starting dose at the first reduction and then 25% the starting dose on the second reduction. Thus, even though there were slightly more treatment delays on lenvatinib and similar treatment dose reductions, the actual achieved dose was 88% of the planned starting dose in lenvatinib, but only 83% of the planned starting dose in serafinib, the dose intensity. A few years ago, Tito Foho and I published a paper in the JCO entitled Oral Anti-Cancer Drugs, How Limited Dosing Options and Dose Reductions May Affect Outcomes in Comparative Trials and Efficacy in Patients. In this paper, we made the argument that these kind of imbalanced dose reduction schema may actually subvert comparative effectiveness studies for targeted oral drugs. We use the example of the AXIS trial where, although serafinib and excitinib started at a similar 
um, dose based on a bunch of considerations. Uh, the dose reduction scheme was different. It penalized serafinib, and exitinib was allowed to even be dose escalated. And there were different rules for how hypertension was handled in that trial. Collectively, this creates an imbalance. When you take a drug and more than a third of patients end up on a dose beside the starting dose, suddenly dose reduction rules take on significance. The reduced dose is a dose that many people are actually taking. And whether or not those differences at the rate at which you reduce actually translate to the efficacy of the agent, with the idea that generally anti-cancer drugs work better the more you push them towards the appropriate, tolerable dose, um, this can lead to an imbalance in the trial. It perhaps may even bias the result. Seven. There are only 63 patients in this study from the United States. I think we really need to ask ourselves if global trials performed in a variety of settings really ought to form the regulatory basis for approval in the United States. We want to know that new cancer drugs coming to the market in the United States improve survival among patients treated with the prevailing standard of care in the United States. And I'm not sure we're able to say that in many of these global trials where post-protocol therapy does not resemble what it looks like in the United States. Eight. The median duration of lenvatinib treatment was 1.5 times longer than that of serafinib treatment, which might have contributed to the higher incidence of adverse events. When adjusted for treatment duration, almost all adverse events episodes were comparable. Okay. This is a very, very unusual statement to appear in the manuscript. Um, I don't like it one bit. You cannot divide the adverse events by the time on drug to get a sort of adverse event per unit of time kind of measurement. We know that adverse events tend to occur earlier in the disease course than later on for many people starting a new drug. They, they tend to experience some of these idiosyncratic events earlier. A much cleaner way to kind of analyze this would be to say, what is the number of adverse events that happen in the first month on treatment into the two arms or the first two months on treatment? Um, these kind of statements, this kind of manipulating the data to, to, to reach some sort of factoid that can be bandied about, this is why bias is problematic. I mean, this is why we want impartiality in the assessment of clinical trials. We need somebody who's impartial, who has no skin in the game, to kind of be looking at this and making a thoughtful assessment of which really is more tolerable, especially in the face of quality of life scores that are virtually identical, and especially in the face of adverse events that sometimes favor serafinib, honestly. Number nine, this is a quite, quite uh, an interesting um, statement included in the manuscript. Our study was potentially limited by its open label design. However, because of the distinct toxicities and dose management requirements, this design was essential to ensure patient safety. Major protocol deviations were few and balanced. The percentage of patients having clinical progression and drug discontinuation were similar in both arms, and results were confirmed by a masked independent imaging review. Therefore, we believe any bias by the open label design was minimal. Oh my goodness. This is not a logical statement. It should not be allowed in, in the trial. One. Um, Simply because drugs have different side effects does not mean you are unable to mask it and have a blinded study. In fact, one might argue that blinding this and masking it with a double double dummy study, a, a study where you have placebos for both drugs and you're taking kind of effectively two pills, you don't know which one is the active and which one is the placebo, um, that's a very logical way to tease apart whether or not there is some sort of perception that the newer drug is superior to the older drug and to separate that from the actual therapeutic effect, especially for things like toxicity, things like fatigue, which are really subjective and, and hard to capture. Um, so that's one. I think it could easily have been blinded. Um, for the price this drug is going to come to market at, I think they could have easily afforded the blinding. Two, 
this idea that just because dose discontinuations were similar in both arms, therefore any bias introduced was minimal, that is not logical at all. Imagine I run, run a race against Usain Bolt. I, of course, tie his ankles together when we run, and maybe I rough him up a little bit. And then we run the race, the 100-meter dash, which is his specialty, not mine. It's certainly not my specialty. And we tie at the end of the race. And then I say, look, we tied. Therefore, any bias that I may have inserted into the race was minimal at best. Um, you would not believe me. Because simply because the result shows comparability doesn't mean there wasn't bias. One wonders what would have happened had there not been the open-label design, had it really been blinded. Okay, what's my bottom line? We don't need non-inferiority trials for highly lethal conditions where we actually need better treatment options. And non-inferiority must be reserved for drugs that either cost less or have significantly less side effects and significantly improve quality of life in order to accept the possibility that the treatment is not as effective as the original treatment. Um, this trial had a non-inferiority upper bound that could accept 60% the treatment effect of serafinib. The treatment of effect of serafinib is not yet satisfactory for our patients. We don't want 60% of a not satisfactory treatment effect. We want a better treatment effect than serafinib, or we want improved quality of life, which was failed to demonstrate. Um, we don't want you to adjust adverse events by the total duration on treatment. If perhaps adverse events are happening preferentially in the early parts of treatment, that's not a really fair or useful comparison. So in short, I think this study offers very little for our patients. I think it is emblematic of how low the bar has gone in oncology. You're talking about a drug that we are debating whether or not serafinib has any real-world impact of benefit in the real world as patients as they come, as they actually are. And now you're talking about accepting a drug that potentially only has 60% the therapeutic efficacy of serafinib. I think it's untenable. It shows how low the bar has fallen. We need superiority trials. I'm going to very briefly talk about combined nivolumab and ipilimumab in melanoma with, with METs to the brain. This is the paper that appealed, appeared in the New England Journal of Medicine. The reason I'm going to be so brief here is because, you know, I don't know. I really, you know, I don't know what the takeaway here really is. Um, I'm not sure how, how useful this study is. Um, as a little bit of a background, I think there is still some open debate in metastatic melanoma where... Is it better to give combined nivolumab plus ipilimumab, which has more co cost and more toxicity, or give nivolumab then ipilimumab sequentially? I think the closest study we have to answer this question is one by Larkin and colleagues that appeared in the New England Journal of Medicine. I think it shows a PFS benefit, but no OS benefit. And when you're really talking about combining drugs that were previously used sequentially, PFS is not a very useful endpoint. Uh, OS is the only useful endpoint, or maybe PFS2 or PFS3 if you want to entertain a surrogate. And if you want to be convinced about that point, I suggest you read a paper called Combining Drugs and Extending Treatment, a PFS Endpoint is Not Sufficient. This appeared in Nature Reviews. It was written by Bashal and I. So this is the study where basically the authors tested in an uncontrolled fashion if we give Nevo and Ipi to patients with one to three brain mets that measure between half to three centimeters that have not been treated with radiation and that are not symptomatic, what kind of response rate do we get? We get a 56% response rate. We get a clinical benefit rate where I'm adding in stable disease of 58%. Okay, that's some response rate. But the real question is, you know, who would really want to take a patient with a three centimeter brain met from melanoma and not deliver SRS? And if I start to ask the question of whether or not, you know, how SRS would have fared in such a study, 
I guess I found a very nice paper entitled Control of Brain Metastases from Radioresistant Tumors Treated by Stereotactic Radiation. And this is a study that showed really a 89.8% clinical benefit rate from the use of radiation. This begs the question, should you use Nevo and Ipi? Should you deliver SRS and then Nevo? Should you do SRS and then Nevo Ipi? I think there are many, many questions that are left open by this study, and they won't be answered by cross-comparisons of uncontrolled phase two studies. You're going to have to do some randomized controlled trials. And until you do those randomized controlled trials, I remain hesitant to conclude that Nevo plus Ipi is the preferred option. Um, I think they have some work to do to convince us that that is the case. And, you know, I'm not really sure what this paper adds. I'm not really sure the value of uncontrolled studies where you omit something you're doing all the time in clinical practice and you just do something else and you just get the result. I don't really know how to interpret that. All right. That's all we have from the Week in Review. Next week, we're going to talk about a bunch of other interesting papers, and I hope I can really delve in deep. Uh, I hope you found this interesting. And now, stay tuned for our interview. I'm back here in Plenary Session HQ with Dr. Avi Oglasser. Avi is an associate professor of medicine at the Oregon Health and Science University. She's a hospitalist who does uh, a great deal of work with the medical residency program. And you're assistant program director of the medical residency, is that right? Yes, I'm an assistant program director specifically for scholarship and social media. Oh, that's fantastic. Avi did her training at the University of Chicago. We both spent some time there, you as an undergrad, me in medical school. Then she went on to medical school at Jefferson in Philadelphia, and finally did her residency at the Oregon Health and Science University. So Avi, it's a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much for having me. Are you delighted to be here? I'm really excited. I was actually listening to another podcast this morning. And a different podcast. Don't I, ever name it. Don't I know, name no it on branding. the show. Okay. Uh, I was listening to Dr. Renee DeVerstel's uh, interview on another podcast that will remain nameless in <laughs> the car. <laughs> and my kids said, Mommy, what are you going to be on the radio? And I said, well, as a matter of fact, this morning, I'm recording. I'm going to be on a podcast. Well, we're delighted to have you. And uh, I hope, uh, I'm not sure this will meet all your expectations, but I hope it meets some of them. Now, when 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 you thought you'd be giving the plenary session, is this what you had in mind? I'm not, I I have no expectations. Okay, good. I, just, good. Try, I try to go with the flow. <laughs> good. That's what we uh, we hope to achieve on this podcast. We want to have very low expectations because we can only over deliver from there. So you know, I I wanted to have you here because I I know you gave a very riveting grand rounds recently. Thank you. On the topic of medical Twitter. That's right. And I thought it would be great to get you on and to pick your brain and to um, see what you think about it. So I have prepared, uh, as you can see here, a list of uh, many, many questions. If you don't mind, let Let's me ask you Let's do it. Okay. Um, you're somebody who thinks a lot about education. You care about scholarship. Um, and you did that in an era before medical Twitter and That's now right. into the era of medical Twitter. So what do you see, what is the value in your mind of this new way of communicating? I think medical Twitter or hashtag med Twitter as uh, sort of those of us who have jumped into the pool will affectionately call it, is a really interesting platform for academic medicine. I think there's been a lot of criticism of social media in general and Twitter uh, when it comes to politics and current events, mm -hmm. but the medical academic realm has really worked hard and I think successfully to make it make it our own and to use it as a 21st century dynamic interactive um, both synchronous and asynchronous platform for sharing if you actually like go to 
a web browser and type in social media and get a basic dictionary definition. It's a digital platform to create, share, and participate. So it's not just static sharing of content. I just read this journal article here. Here's a link. Right. It's more that than is, that. It's much more than that. It's interacting with it. It's criticizing it. It's commenting mm-hmm. on it. It's gaining feedback from readers, from exactly. trainees. Yeah. How many years have you been on Twitter? I have had my personal Twitter account for only three and a half years. Three and a half years. So you're a relatively new adopter. I am, I am relatively new. And it's interesting. I joined Facebook three months after it was created. I see. I actually know the exact date I joined Facebook. What is that? 2004, 2005-ish? Uh, 2000, May 4th, 2004 for I me. See. And mm-hmm. I think Facebook went live on February 4th, 2004. I see. Because what my college was one of the first college at the University of Chicago. Right. It went, was, it went down the U.S. News ranking, did it not? It was uh, good schools first. <laughs> <laughs> I eventually got it. <laughs> because you had to have a university email address yeah, from certain universities from certain yeah. universities mm-hmm. and you could only see other people at that same university it was very siloed right. it was very siloed discreetly defined communities in the beginning and actually I, would, I had graduated the year before but I had my alumni mm-hmm. address that forwarded to my active email so that's how I got onto Facebook and for years I thought why do I need another platform my younger much younger sister who was clearly a millennial uh, was on Twitter and sharing pictures and Instagram pictures and food, you know, the, the quintessential stereotypical food photos. And I was like, why do I need to be on Twitter? Why do I need another platform? And it was colleagues here who extolled the their per, the, the perceived value of it for them in academic medicine, and I jumped into the fray. And uh, and from the moment you were in Twitter, um, were you were you using it the same way you use it now? Was there a period of you know? of learning of being I don't know I I think a lot of people uh, tell me they were on often for many months maybe even years um, and they really kind of just used it to follow some other people they didn't really comment much themselves and then something happened and then they started to feel a little bit more comfortable and started to to talk a little bit more on Twitter did you find that was the case in your situation I think that was absolutely the case and and I'll issue a disclaimer I participate in or run a couple other branded accounts so this is not I don't have just my personal accounts you got some burner accounts no they're not burner accounts. They're they're official accounts, right. um, but they're group accounts. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a very common story. Talk about you know the narrative in medicine and getting out of just the check boxes. Um, starting gradually, getting a lay of the landscape, not throwing yourself in head first, and then burning out, uh, crashing and burning, and deciding not to do it. And one of my best uh, best pearls I've seen from a, a medical Twitter guru mentor, uh, Dr. Ed Mariano, who's an anesthesiologist down at Stanford, actually says the heart and soul of the scientific method is observation. Mm-hmm. So for someone who says, oh, I have an account, but I never go on, I never tweet, maybe I'll retweet or re- not even reply. So mm-hmm. I'm not creating any, ori- I'm not typing any original content. I'm lurking, I'm stalking, I'm a wallflower. You hear those words a lot too. Right. And I think that is a great way to start. Get on, get an account. And who and should just, the, and who who to follow? Who should the, who should somebody follow right off the bat? And let's say we're talking to a trainee because I think mm-hmm. um you know, I think it really uh has perhaps the most utility uh for those whose minds are still wide open, which is often yeah. uh, medical students, residents, fellows. Um how should they engage with it? I think I like to talk about Twitter as having onion rings or different spheres mm-hmm. of communities. And, and Med Twitter has been a great way to create and define new communities. I talked about with the earliest versions of Facebook that the communities were very tightly defined and siloed. But and Twitter often has, based on real life communities. Exactly. People, right, right. That Twitter has 
completely thrown up in the air the definition of of who your community is, which I think is one of the wonderful things about it in the medical world and academic world. Mm -hmm. But start, I think it's okay to start local, Mm -hmm. start small. With uh, professors at your university. Exactly. uh Start with people that you know Mm -hmm. and know from face-to-face, one-on-one interactions, what their tone, style, goals, priorities, motivations are. See who they're following. See See who they're commenting on. I think Twitter lists. I think Twitter lists in general are under repre- uh, underappreciated, undervalued, and underutilized. Do you use them? I do. I do use Twitter lists uh, pretty extensively. Can uh, can readers um, see your lists and and use them as a sort of jumping off point? Absolutely. Well, I don't have any lists under my my personal account, but the other accounts I, I work on. So, like the OHSU Internal Medicine Residency account right. has several lists. I see, including a list of all the other internal medicine residency programs on Twitter that we know about. There, right. there may be a couple that we've missed accidentally. But if you were a student or if you were a resident and right. wanted to see what other residency programs were tweeting about, or if you were a chief resident and wanted to learn by seeing what other innovations chief residents are bringing to their programs, you could go to this public created list and narrow your news, uh, news feed scrolling. Now you're you're a faculty member here. You you see patients. Uh, you you teach. Uh, you're a busy person. Mm-hmm. So when do you find time uh, to get on Twitter and to to catch up? Um, you know, the analogies that people use will either be during diastole or your interstitial time. Right. I see. Ah, well put. Uh, that's what I find. I find it seeps in the cracks it between does, other activities. It can right? seep in the cracks during your diastole. Um, a lot of people joke that they they hop on Twitter when they're waiting for elevators. Right. Yeah. No, that's Wi-Fi, a great opportunity. The Wi-Fi around here is actually pretty good in the elevator lobbies. Uh, the if I have. You know, standing in line at the uh-huh. cafeteria, uh-huh. or I have a patient who no shows, or I just I have five or 10, 15 minutes. Right, here. so it fills the little spaces between other activities. It does, and I think that could be a criticism that it's just it seeps in and takes over. Mm-hmm. You know, it infiltrates your life, or you can say, especially some of the discussion that Twitter is helping physicians find the joy or see others finding their joy in practice w- amongst all the talk about wellness and burnout and resilience. And sometimes a quick little uh, exchange. Do you set limits on, um, on like, are there hours you block out where you're just not going to look? I try to be centered and focused on my patients, like when I'm in clinic, or certainly when I'm rounding with the residents right. and patient. I'm not going to sneak a look at my phone right. or my, my Twitter app when I really should be present for for learners good, good and yeah. um, and patient care activities. Right. Wonderful, well said. I try to also separate it from family time. Like the phone should not be at the dinner table. I certainly certainly shouldn't be using it while I'm driving in the car. Things like that. Certainly. But also because I tweet professionally, and it really is part of my my job Your description. Job is, right. I do feel that it's appropriate to make time for it at work during the workday. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you know you're uh, you're putting it so well. I think you're really striking a, a very reasonable balance and and using it. You know, I'm a big fan of the way you use it. I think you're Thank using you. it very appropriately and uh, very uh, skillfully. Um, here's, what, here's what I wanted to ask you. Okay. Um, you gave a grand rounds. You alluded to this. Um, and, um, and, and, and I did see this. Um, I, I noticed that there was a, a senior cardiologist, a professor at another university. Uh, this gentleman wrote a blog. Uh, he wrote a blog uh, where he talked about how he didn't like Twitter. Correct. Um, so I do notice that there's an interesting hierarchy that's um, you know tacitly being assumed here. That writing a blog, that's that's wonderful, uh, but tweeting, no, that's uh, that's beneath us. Um, okay. But my question is, 
and I read the arguments, and I, I, I kind of found them lacking um, in terms of you know why Twitter is ostensibly bad. Um, but my my question really is, um, do you think that part of the reason why many of why some physicians may not like social media is that we live in a field that up until very recently was extremely hierarchical, Mm -hmm. that was extremely um, regimented, that there were only very narrow avenues in which careers could be advanced. And those avenues had well, uh, had really strong gatekeepers. Um, And there was only one way to kind of get your voice heard in academic medicine Mm -hmm. um, through traditional journal processes. It really required years and years and years. And one of the things social media has really put on its head is that someone out there who may be a community doctor, maybe early in their career, um, simply by being very a clear thinker, um, maybe a little charismatic, um, maybe pretty sharp, um, uh, can really gain a wide audience simply by the virtue of the content mm-hmm. and not necessarily by where they've worked and what their pedigree is and who they know. Does that threaten some physicians? I wouldn't be surprised if it does. I think it's a... And change is hard to accept. Um, but sometimes there there need to be movers and shakers embracing a new technology, embracing a, a bold, brave new world um, who challenge the establishment. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the exciting things about med Twitter is that... Have you read articles or f- points of view that you don't think you would have read in traditional journal articles? Oh, absolutely. And And have you seen educational modules that you don't think would have come across well in a classroom setting? I think so. And I think we we know that, I, I hate saying the term millennial learner because we're all learning. We all are in medicine to continually learn. Well, I hope we feel that way because the, moment you, the moment you stop feeling that way, the moment you start getting very bad, I think. I, I was just on a conference call about this last week talking about how we can sort of, working on with other um, experts in med ed on how we can share the value of Twitter. and. Part of the discussion was, do we use the term millennial learner or do we just say the 21st century learner? Mm-hmm. Because it's not just millennials that we're talking about engaging right. or teaching. No, I don't think anyone's talking about completely trashing the med school curriculum. And there's a lot of... Except me. But <laughs> other than me, there's not very many people talking about it. Um, and completely moving to Twitter. Right. Okay. I think but but <laughs> even I, I, would, I don't champion that. I actually just, just support changing the, the, the curricular focus. But you're right. Nobody is saying we should only have Twitter. Correct. We shouldn't have books. We shouldn't have journal articles. I read a lot of journal articles. I read a lot of books. And I also engage in Twitter. Um, so you're saying this is a supplement. It's an addition so. to. It's a novel it's, way. Yeah. It's another part of the toolkit. Yeah. And But I will say that one of the things that I find um, really has been better in the era of Twitter um, is rapid real-time criticism of prominent journal articles. You know, Mm -hmm. it used to be the case you'd read an article that appeared in the New England Journal of Medicine, and if you found something insightful or clever about that article that may, you know, may be praiseworthy, but may also really cut to the the heart of the message and be quite damning, um, you know, you could really kind of just share that with the people you knew Mm -hmm. um, by word of mouth, perhaps the next time you give a lecture on the topic. Now you see people dissecting articles in real time as they come out. and, and I learn a lot by that. I learn how to read better. It, it makes me a better reader. We've got some of these statisticians on there, um, you know, really some luminaries who mm-hmm. have done a lot of work um, building, you know, not just building the foundations of sort of modern biomedical statistics, but also writing the textbooks, et cetera. Um, they're out there giving real-time criticism, linking to their blogs, and I'm learning more stats than I've ever learned before. 
um, by by engaging with those with those people. Um, and I'd say it's not just the criticism. I don't want to just go down the, the pathway towards negativity. The, the negativity or okay. the pessimism of Twitter, but just access to real-time <laughs> debate, discussion, higher-level analysis. One of the adult learning theories is that you need debate, discussion. You need to actively engage with the material in some way to take it from short-term memory to solidify it into long-term memory. So multiple small meetings, multiple engagements, and again, active discussion, not just passive reading. And along those lines, you know, I think of a really great um, kind of tutorial that was done by Daryl Francis on what's an odds ratio. And he mm-hmm. has some sort of educational videos. And, and his, his point of view is very, very simple. He wants you to know at the end of the video what an odds ratio is and be able to sort of articulate that. And uh, he hit the ball out of the park. I mean, I've never seen such a clear, insightful, well-done, thoughtful presentation on the odds ratio, which is something that we kind of take for granted. We see it all the time, but we don't really sit down and think about it. Do I know exactly what this means mathematically? And can I describe it across a range of circumstances, which is what he does. And I think one of the criticisms of Twitter has been the fact that it used to be only 140 characters. Now it's 280 in a tweet. And um, I think people are getting very skilled at stringing together tweets to either a thread or what we're calling tweetorials. That you're, it's not just 280 characters, but it it is pushing us to excel in the um, the art of short form communication. How are you succinct? How are you um, not rambling? So even doing a tweetorial, and I've done two myself, you really have to get your content precise and right. sharp and crisp. Right. I'm reminded by the quote by Hemingway, long periods of thinking, short periods of writing. And that's what it feels like to put together a tutorial. I love that. That's a great way to describe it. Let me ask you this. Um, has Twitter, this virtual world, led to collaborations or prospects in the real world for you? Yes, absolutely. I have met uh, some wonderful individuals that I'm, I'm thrilled to be able to call uh, close colleagues now through Twitter collaborations. And uh, this was even a, a retort I threw out there during my grand rounds. One could argue, one could counter, well, why aren't you developing more networks at your home institution? Why aren't you staying local? But I think the whole point of academic medicine, and you talked about the, the rigid hierarchy of the P&T realm, you have to get out of your bubble. And academic institutions, you can agree or disagree, are expecting us to get out of our shell and export our knowledge. You know, to, uh, Doctor comes from the Latin to teach, that we need to, it's, I want to say I don't want to say it's beyond patient care because so much of what we do no, is but you you centered, feel it's part of the obligation to I think so. to disseminate um, and um, you know getting out of your bubble into conference season once once a year or for a couple months stretch out of the year still is not may not may lead to some collaborations and new friendships and new networking mm-hmm. but it's it's they're discrete points in time but I think Twitter has and for me personally has definitely led to. Um, lasting collaborations. collaborations. I did a Twitter a workshop on Twitter for chief residents at the Aptum meeting mm-hmm. last year with two physicians from Philly who I met on Twitter. We didn't meet each other in person until the day before our talk. Right. I see. And other people, I, I mentioned this conference call last week, there are six of us from around the country who know each other from Twitter who are working on a project together. That's wonderful. And I think, um, you know, you, you alluded to conferences uh, in, in what you were saying. And I think Twitter's kind of changed the way I interact at conferences because oh, yeah. while I'm in the meeting, while I'm listening to the presenter, while I'm following along, I often have uh, it open to the hashtag, mm-hmm. um, getting the impressions in real time of other people who are participating in the same session and kind of getting um, perhaps some ideas that I hadn't thought of. Exactly. So the hashtag meeting tweeting, right. um, how are conferences, how are professional societies encouraging people to spread information and network and connect via Twitter 
and you go to a large meeting and there are multiple concurrent sessions so get you access to things you may have missed. But I like also somebody that I'm, I may be sitting 10 people away from in a session and they're tweeting their commentary on a learning pearl and it's a it adds another facet. They're like, oh, I didn't even think of that way to interpret this pearl or this nugget. Now, let me ask you this. We've, we've been talking a lot about the benefits, but mm-hmm. um, but there have to be harms and risks. Oh, uh, sure. Okay? So uh, that's what I want to know. What do you see? Or what are the downsides? What what what, what um, yeah? What should people be worried about? What should people try to avoid? I think always stay professional. Uh, I think the five second rule. You go. You grow up learning the five second rule. Think five seconds before you say it. Mm-hmm. Certainly applies to tweets and maybe should even be like a thirty second rule. Mm-hmm. Um, you can delete a tweet, but in the realm of screen grabs and other ways of preserving digital media, tweet never dies. What about talking about, um, what are your, I mean, I don't know if there's a right answer here, but I think people have different thoughts. Um, you know, you and I both use this in a medical context. Mm-hmm. We talk about medical issues. Um, do you like when people talk about other issues, uh, uh, political issues, uh, which I can be can be very, uh, you know, obviously a touchy subject, um, but, or even sort of like lifestyle issue. You know, this is where I, this is the restaurants I like to eat at. This is what things I like to do in my free time. Do you, does that add to the work-life balance? Does that show trainees that we're engaging that? Do you like that or do you not like that? I like trying to keep um, my personal and professional separate on Twitter mm-hmm. as much as possible, but right. I think they, I think there's a little bit of, of healthy creep. So when I got onto Twitter three and a half years ago, I said I'm going to keep my personal life off of it. Facebook is 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 personal, is private. Facebook's for friends and Twitter's for and, colleagues. And Twitter's for colleagues. Right. And certainly because Twitter's public, right. um, you, you can block stuff, but it's pretty hard to do. And I think it goes against the spirit of Twitter. I make a point of not having any pictures of my kids' faces on Twitter. Uh, I don't use their names on Twitter. What I The creep has been talking about like work-life balance. So I like mm-hmm. to use the hash, hashtag, hashtag work-life balance, not infrequently. Because, because I think it also lends yeah. a human element that I'm not just an academic clinician, but I'm a person mm-hmm. who, who daily just, tries to make sure that I have balance. And when or, you go home, you don't just read Harrison's uh, nonstop until the next work day. So I may say, you know, I take a day off or I'm doing something on a right. weekend. Um, there's a hashtag going around med gardening. So... People have been sort of having fun sharing photos of their garden, something like that. But I think it lends a realism. Um, you know, some of these type A personalities in medicine, I'm scared to see their garden. It's going to be meticulous. It's going to be really good. <laughs> it's going to blow me away. But so the OHSU News recently did an article, interviewed several physicians here. And Dr. Nate Selden, who's a pediatric neurosurgeon, used the line, um, bring the personal to the professional. Mm-hmm. But I think also uh, you talked about advocacy, which is I think is an incredible potential for Twitter. Um, but when it, I, you talk about also the light bulb moments, when was there like an aha moment with your Twitter use? So a year and a half ago for me, when I really was making a point to make sure that I didn't mention my kids on Twitter, I realized that I needed to open up about myself being a mom, a physician who was a mom, a mom who was a physician. So when the Affordable Care Act was really coming under assault, mm-hmm. um, my youngest has several pre-existing conditions. And I felt that I was in a position to talk about uh, advocating for the Affordable Care Act as a physician, but also uh, that I was passionate about it as a mom. You know, we have insurance, mm-hmm. but as a mom of someone with pre-existing conditions. Right. So, Although you're fortunate, um, you feel that there's got to be a lot of people in my shoes um, for for which this bill is vitally important, mm-hmm. and we have to really speak out about that. Yeah. So using. Yeah. To, you know, doing advocacy-related tweets with and, and that's like, a good point because I have to say that the medical Twitter around the assaults to the Affordable Care Act had been very robust, and you saw a lot of really wonderful things being said. Um, as as we well know, that uh, 
you and I practiced in the era where we didn't have the Affordable exactly. Care Act, and it was not easy to practice. No, I'll tell you not that at much. all. It was I think we all have um, horror stories. Horror stories. The, yeah. yeah, and I think that's that's not being overdramatic. I think that's we all not, have horror no. stories from residency or, or fellowship, in your case, where clearly a patient's care uh, or health suffered because they didn't have coverage. Right. And um, and I think those of us who've lived through that time are very grateful for the fact that in many ways coverage is much easier to get today mm-hmm. than it ever was. My last question for you, and I know I've taken a lot of your time. Oh, this my, is fun. My last question for you. Um, do you think, and, and if you think yes, then maybe how would you operationalize, um, Will social media be used for promotion and tenure? You mentioned P&T. Will it be used for careers? Can people, can people's scholarship be making a podcast like Adam Rodman's? Can people's scholarship be, or this podcast, but, um, but, I, but um, it's, it's not my primary area of research, but um, can people's scholarship be um, tutorials like Tony, uh, what's the Tony? Tony Brew. Tony Brew. Tony Brew's tutorials, which are really excellent learning. They um, are. Highly encourage you to check them out. Can people's scholarship be writing thoughtful blogs? Um, will, will that be able to be assessed in the future? I would love to see that. Mm-hmm. And the Mayo Clinic, uh, about two years ago, I think at this point, actually announced that they would be incorporating social media activities into their PNT criteria. I haven't seen any other academic institution do it yet. The Mayo's been at the forefront of social media and understanding it. Um, there's actually something called the Mayo Clinic Social Media Network. I hope I didn't botch that. Um, but they're really out there leading the charge on understanding how we should utilize this as 21st century communicators. And again, getting back to that doctor is comes from the Latin to teach, mm-hmm. that our public mission, our calling is to teach, serve, share content, be it a publication in a highly rated journal with a huge impact factor or not. And I would love to see ways, and and one of the things I'm working on the side right now is how do you best capture, how do you best extrapolate the impact, the reach? So you and I have both gone through promotion and tenure at this point already. You have to prove your Mm -hmm. impact. You have to prove the size of your footprint or how big your ripple effect was from a publication. You had to document a lot of things I never thought I'd have to document, yeah. And if you are doing, it's one thing to say, oh, I I tweet, I respond, I I do certain more fluff stuff, quote unquote on Twitter, but if you do something incredibly robust that you've put time into behind the scenes, like a tutorial or a podcast, how can you monopolize or how can you capture the, and, and Twitter has met analytics, you can actually see numbers on the reach of an impact of a tweet. Um, and if you say like, I did a tutorial, these are the analytics from it. Mm-hmm. Um, how does that get attention? So that's actually something I sat down and started working on last week. That's wonderful. And or, you know, I, I, I kind of think about this too. And I feel like, um, you know, I'm somebody who thinks of my identity primarily as, you know, the papers I published, um, the, the articles I published, mm-hmm. the commentaries I published. Um, and I, I sort of came up in that sort of older way of thinking. Um, but, you know, if I'm perfectly honest, I have to admit that while some of my papers are really well read, and I hope have had some impact, uh, some of my papers have been read um, by very, very few people. Uh, and that's the, we, we have data on that. We that have data 90% on that. of articles are uh-huh. never cited, and 50% of articles, I think, are read by three people. The authors, the reviewers and the editor, sometimes, and maybe the author's parents, and maybe the author's parents. <laughs> I was like, sometimes I look at how many times my article has been looked at, and I know that at least fifty percent of those downloads are my own. So I, I really do struggle with that, and 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 I, I say that only uh, to to and and you really you know you you make the point well to say that like 
we should have some humility that writing an article um, that no one reads, um, I'm not sure that is better uh, than writing a tweet that is really widely disseminated and that kind of accurately goes through um, a thoughtful issue. Or also use Twitter to disseminate your article. Uh, I forget who said it, so mm-hmm. I'd love to credit them, but you know, an article is not going to speak for itself. You need to do the speaking for it. So a lot of people say, I, I have, I'm far from perfecting the art of the humble brag. Uh, I can't just tweet every uh, one of my own publications like no you should yeah this is one thing i have to tell you the, have the to trainees. get stuff out there uh, you know people tell me you know i don't want to be seen tweeting my own article and i want to like yell at them and say that's why people are following you they want to hear what you have to say you know don't feel bad about that you should embrace that now uh, you know th- there's obviously a line where you know you're only tweeting about your stuff nobody wants to re- you know there's there's some limits to it but um you know, don't be afraid to tweet something you did that you're proud of. Exactly. And I think there's, figure out what the right verbiage is. Just, you know, you sort of do a word salad game, throw out adjectives, adverbs, verbs. Um, and especially like for you and me, we're in academic medicine and we're rarely publishing by ourselves mm-hmm. at this point. Maybe we're publishing with another attending, but probably the majority of the stuff that trainees. we're publishing now is with trainees. Yeah, of course. And I think you have great examples. And I actually have used your tweets as examples of how do you celebrate learners? How do you champion learners who have done the bulk of a publication work? And it's not just a gratuitous, look at this, look at my new publication. It's I'm thrilled to share the work that I did with these trainees. Yeah, and Either I guess- tagging them on Twitter or tra- tagging a residency program on Twitter. I guess I, I every year I become more and more impressed with trainees because I think about how I was when I was in their position and I was never nearly as good as they were. Um, I've worked with people, you just give a seed of an idea to, you talk it out a little mm-hmm. bit and they come back to you with products that are so well done, so thoughtful. Yeah. Uh, it really blows me away. And so, uh, you know, I do think, um, I wish they could get even more credit. Um, uh, but I think many of them, it'll come in time and they're gonna be, have very successful careers. Um, any last thoughts uh, before before we close? Last thoughts. Um, one of the lines that I always come back to when I talk about or think about selling Twitter is the line from um, the end of one of the Indiana Jones movies where they're like in the they find like the crusade night and it's like you chose poorly or you chose wisely, mm-hmm. uh, not to steal the choosing wisely campaign <laughs> motto. Um, but I think there's ways to do it well. There are ways to use Med Twitter very well and feel very fulfilled by the the doors and um, and avenues it's led you down. Um, but it's also very easy to we talked about some of the pitfalls. But um, I think it can be very easy to put your foot in your mouth and and say something you're going to regret. Um, we didn't really have a chance to talk about respecting patient privacy, mm-hmm. but, but certainly always vital. any other you know, common sense. Um, if you wouldn't talk about it in an elevator, certainly don't tweet it. Um, don't this, tw- and yeah. I think I think social media has also shaken up how journals are requesting patient consent for case reports. Mm-hmm. It's much easier to find stuff now. There's so much digital data points out there. So if you're going to tweet a pearl like, I had this really fulfilling patient encounter today, please be very careful about that. It's fully anonymized. That is fully anonymized. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so even just saying, I had this really incredible interaction with a patient, but you have no idea who this patient might be. Um, like I tweeted yesterday that a patient themselves had used the, the phrases narrative story getting away from the EHR in a conversation. And that was just an incredible, uh, and I think it actually coincided with the uh, ACGME back to bedside initiative meeting. And I just tweeted a back to bedside moment. No, no information about this patient. A- didn't use age, didn't use gender, didn't use condition. I, I think that's a, such an important pearl um, yeah. to, to let But just be know. very careful. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and just don't do anything you're gonna regret. And if you're not sure, 
find a mentor either on or off Twitter who can model best practice for you. And whom you can perhaps run some things by yeah. and yeah, get some sense of it. Avio Glasser, thank you so much thank for coming on, on the plenary session. Will you return I'd to, love to. to the session? Okay, great. Depends on what you want me to talk about. Okay, well, hopefully <laughs> it'll be something of, of mutual interest. Well, thank you so much. I think uh, you know, you've given listeners a wealth of good information here. Um, and if they want to follow you on Twitter, what's your handle? I am at A Oglasser. And I encourage you all to do so. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you. You've been listening to Plenary Session. Plenary Session is a new podcast at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy. I've been your host, Vinay Prasad. If you like this show and you like this podcast, uh, please go to the iTunes store and give us five stars. Uh, It means a lot. Um, Follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session um, or send us an email at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. If you have any thoughts, questions, topics you want to cover, let us know. We'd love to get some feedback. Uh, Plenary Session uh, owes a debt of gratitude to Kiana Klossner, uh, Audrey Tran, and Ian Straley.